thank you that, uh, that we can come to you tonight, and we thank you that uh, you really are there. We thank you that you exist. We thank you that we have the opportunity to look into a book that is without error, that has been penned by you through men who you chose and uh, who you inspired. We are grateful that this uh, Bible has been preserved. Uh, we are grateful that it's available in our language. We are grateful for the men who even gave their lives to translate it and get it in to common language when before it was just available to uh, clergy who were educated and who knew Latin, uh, knew the Greek, knew the Hebrew. We, we are so thankful that it is available to us. We pray tonight that uh, we will look carefully at it, that you will instruct us, uh, that you will remind us of the fact that you are very, very active in our lives, and you have given us a way to live that is patterned for us in the Scripture. Help us to live as wise men and not foolish men. Help us not to squander our lives. Help us not to make foolish decisions. Those of us that are facing decisions in the next 24, 48 hours, May we make decisions in light of eternity rather than the immediate. We get wisdom from your book. So uh, instruct us, we, we would ask you to do tonight by your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This country was uh, founded by some people who were interested in establishing a nation that was different. Now, I'm specifically referring to the pilgrims when they came over, because they came from a nation, they came from a nation that they hated to leave, but they had to leave. And the reason they left England was basically over two words, just two words. The two words which caused them to leave England were the two words rex lex. Now, rex lex means simply that king is law. Uh, they left England because of the system of government where they were dictated to, uh, which required them to violate their consciences. And there wasn't anything called religious freedom. So they decided to make a huge change they went to Holland first. Uh, they were there about eight years, and then they came to this land. One of the things that they wanted to see happen was a reversal of Rex Lex to Lex Rex. A guy by the name of Samuel Rutherford uh, wrote a book called Lex Rex. Lex Rex means law is king. Uh, in England, king was law. We've never lived under a king, so we don't know what that would be like. But when king is law, it's a very precarious existence. Because you see, the law is whatever the king wants it to be. And on a whim, the king can uh, change things. They came to this nation to avoid Rex Lex so that Lex Rex could be established. Uh, where did, they get, where did Samuel Rutherford get the idea of lex rex? Not that king is law, but that law is king. Where did he get that? He got it from the Bible. Who is the king of kings and lord of lords? Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when, when Jesus came to this earth, what he did was he lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross for our sins. Uh, Jesus, in coming, did not violate the law. Jesus fulfilled the law in every point. And in looking at government, Samuel Rutherford, looking at the example of Jesus, thought to himself, if the king of kings did not usurp law but fulfilled the law, then why should any human king be over law? 
Law should be king, not king should be law. You guys following me? So as a result, we have had some freedoms in this country. And when they were laying out the foundational principles of this country, one of the things in their background, and if you read the Mayflower Compact that the Pilgrims put together, one of the things that was in their mind was Lex Rex, that law is king. That's why we have had um, freedom in this nation uh, for several hundred years. Now, I don't know if you guys had a chance to listen to the radio just before you got here. And I don't know if you know that there was a terrorist attack that happened just a little bit ago in New Jersey. And, and you may think I'm kidding. But, but you see, sometimes history is made, and, and people don't realize it's been made. Um, I, I think it's a, a safe bet that days that we would look at as historic, if you were to go back to those civilizations and say to them on that day, do you realize how significant this day is? Most of them wouldn't realize how significant the day is. Now, you say, where are you going here? Well, here's where I'm going, is that we continue on a downward slide as a nation away from Lex Rex. Because you see, one of the reasons that this country has been a place where people desire to come is because of the principle of Lex Rex, that law is king and the king isn't law. Uh, that's a biblical principle. And, as, and out of that principle, you see, where does law come from? Well, in this country, law has been based primarily on the scriptures. Not all the time, but primarily when, when if you were in law school, couple hundred years ago, or even a hundred years ago, what you would do is you would read Blackstone's commentaries. And what Blackstone would do is he would give you the law, then he would give you the scripture verses which were the basis for the law. The foundational book in the formation of this country was not the Koran. It was the Bible. It was the Word of God. Uh, <clears throat> we are, uh, we're living in a time, we're living in a time where the fundamental uh, precepts which men have died for, which 18-year-old boys have shed their blood uh, at Iwo Jima and on the beaches of Normandy. I want to tell you something. Uh, there was a terrorist attack today. And you say, man, that's, that's, that's strong. It's strong, but it's accurate. Because you see, what happened today, and so what happened today? Well, we just changed the law. Now, we've been doing this here and there for a while. It's, I don't care, and, and you say, oh, you're just a Republican. You're upset with the Democrat. Has nothing to do with that. It's a law issue. Florida was a law issue. That's what it was. Um, Roe versus Wade was a law issue because the court basically on, on a without any legal precedent, without moral precedent, just suddenly said abortion is legal. It's okay to take an unborn child. And it had not been okay five minutes before they gave the decision. But suddenly it is okay. On what basis? On the basis that a small elite decided to change it. You guys tracking with me here? This is significant stuff what this means, and see, it's bigger than just what's happening in New Jersey. Because what, see, basically what's happening is, if we don't like what the law says, what do we do? We circumvent it. You know what? You can't have a country that does that. You can't survive as a country. That's what historically has happened in countries like uh, Uganda and the Sudan. That's when you're asking, see, what are the implications of this? Where is this going to be in five years? Where is this going to be in 10 years? Because if someone doesn't like a law, then what do they do? You just change it. And it's not, it's not Rex Lex, king is law, it's that judges are law. So this is historic. It's, uh, it's an attack on the very foundations of how we were founded. Uh, why, let me ask you this. We enjoy a measure of religious freedom in this country, less than we have enjoyed in the past. 
Uh, how do you know that'll be around in 10 years? How do you know it won't be illegal in 10 years together to worship? Or in 20 years? Or in 30 years? How do you know that? Because you see, it's already being set up to take, you say, well, that's a freedom we've been, well, we had this other freedom, and that's been taken. So what do we do? Well, I'll tell you what I'd like to do, but I'm not going to do that. Um, I find it interesting. I was having trouble today coming up with an introduction for Philippians 1, verses 3 to 11. I didn't listen to the radio all day. I didn't watch the news. And at about 5 o'clock, I walked in, and Mary was watching the news. And she said, did you hear what happened? And I said, no. And she told me. And I thought, well, there's my introduction. Number one, just because I was hacked off and I wanted to get it off my chest. That was part of it. But the second thing is, is that as Paul is sitting in jail in Rome, which is where he is, as we're in the book of Philippians, you should understand that Paul is in a situation where it's not Lex Rex, it's Rex Lex. King is law. Uh, there haven't been too many people throughout history that have set in a situation where the law was king. Most of them were in a situation where the king was law. That's why Christians would die. That's why Christians would be martyred. That's why uh, Christians would be tortured. That's why uh, they would have their, their homes burned and uh, wives and daughters uh, raped, as is going on in the Sudan, and children that are being taken from Christian parents and sold into slavery. That stuff's happening all over the world. We are very fortunate to live in a situation where, to a degree, the law is still king. But it's, it's, it's very tentative. It really is. Paul was in a situation where king was law. And king, in his particular circumstances, was Nero. He was Caesar. Paul had appealed to Caesar. That's why he's in jail in, uh, in Rome. And in, the, in Philippians, what is happening is that Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, basically thanking them for two things, for the financial gift that they sent him, and secondly, for a guy by the name of Epaphroditus, who they sent from the church at Philippi. Ten years before, Paul had started the church at Philippi. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 16, because that's where the account of the founding of the church at Philippi uh, is recorded for us. Now, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at uh, verses 3 through 11. And we're going to look at it from two different viewpoints. If you've never been to the Texas State Fair, uh, it's worth going to. It's, it's quite a fair. I've been to the Iowa State Fair, by the way. That's, that was quite a fair. They got the, at the Iowa State Fair, I'll never forget this. They got this, they got this one room you walk into, this exhibition, and they've got a life-size cow sculpted out of butter. Yeah, I mean, it just, do they have that here? Yeah. Ours is bigger, I think. <laughs> it's got to be bigger. It's tough. I mean, it just clogs your arteries to look at that sucker. You got about 1,200 pounds of sculpted butter in the shape of a, of a Guernsey or something. Quite a fair. If you've never been to the Texas State Fair, uh, there are two ways you can see it. You can just show up, buy a ticket, and start walking around. And you don't have a clue what you're doing. You don't have a clue where you're going. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it would be to immediately make your way to the Ferris wheel. And if you get on the Ferris wheel, you're going to get a perspective of the Texas State Fair that you're not going to get from the ground. You're going to be able to see the layout. You're going to be able to see how things are situated. You're going to be able to see where certain exhibits are. You're going to see where, the, uh, where all the rides are. You're going to see, you know what I'm talking about? It's just a totally different perspective when you see it from up top. Uh, what I want to do in Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 is I kind of want us to look at it from the Ferris wheel. And I, I want to give you, I want to touch on each section but then we're going to come back, and we're going to uh, camp on a verse, which I think is the central verse of all of Philippians. And in a sense, 
the most important verse of all of Philippians. So in Philippians 1, Paul is, uh, remember now, he's, he's writing out of prison in Rome. And in verse 3 he says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What is happening here in, in Philippians is that as Paul writes this letter, is he's remembering these people. He remembers them and all that occurred 10 years before. He remembers the events. He remembers the circumstances. He remembers being thrown in jail. He remembers the people that came to Christ. He has very fond memories of these people. This, uh, this was an exemplary church. Uh, these were people that had consistently been behind Paul. Uh, they had supported him. They had encouraged him. They were people that he was able to count on. He had a bond with these people. These people just weren't uh, acquaintances. They were friends. They were, they were tight. There was, a, uh, there was a kindred spirit between him and these guys. They, they, they had been to war together. They had some memories. Uh, they had some things that they shared uh, he was close with these people. What he's going to do is, in, in, in this opening uh, salvo, if you will, between 3 and 11 is, he's going to remember three things. Let me give them to you. I've already started into the first one. Number one, he remembers their work. That's verses 3 to, through 6. He's going to remember their work, and this was significant. Then, in verses 7 through 8, he remembers their heart, their heart. These people, these people had a heart for God. They had a heart for him. There was, um, that was the kind of relationship. It was heart to heart here. Uh, thirdly, he remembers them in prayer. He's very specific about this. That's verses 9 through 11. Now, let's, let's, let's just go back to 3 six. Grace to you and peace, or uh, that's two. I thank my God in all my remembrance. He's thinking about them. He's remembering them. In my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You see what he's saying? There's a 10-year stretch. He said, you've been with me. You've participated. You've labored with me. You've been on my team. You've encouraged me. You've written me um, from the first day until now. There's been a 10-year uh, proven track record with these people. These weren't fly-by-night friends. These weren't the kind of people you talk to on the phone once a year. They were in touch as best they could with this guy. They were behind him 100%. They were on his team. You know what? We all need a team. We, we, the, the Christian life was never designed to be lived alone. One of the things that the enemy does is he tries to isolate us from other believers. He likes to get men in particular in a situation where they're lone rangers, where they're not connected with anybody, where they are uh, not involved in a study like this or in a church. They are just isolated. Uh, you're in trouble. We were not designed to live in isolation. The Bible says, out of the blocks, it says, it is not good for the man to be what? Look, that's marriage. God's plan for most men is that they be married. Now, there's a gift of singleness. God gives you the gift. That's great. Uh, but even people that have a gift of singleness live in relationship. You can't live, you can't live without it. And it has to be the right kind of relationships, and it has to be the right kind of friends. Uh, Corinthians says bad company corrupts good morals. So choosing the right kind of people, choosing the right kind of friend is, is absolutely critical. These people were significant to Paul because they'd been with him, they'd been on board from day one. You know a lot of churches gave Paul trouble, they gave him difficulties. These guys didn't do that. They weren't perfect, but, uh, but their hearts were right. Um, notice what he says here. Uh, because of, because of their participation in the gospel from the first day into now, look at verse 6. And I think verse 6, we're going to come back and camp on verse 6. 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's one of the most significant verses in all the New Testament. I think pretty much the most significant verse, it's pivotal for the whole book of Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to that. Uh, what, what, what he is saying about these people is that their work was exceptional. Exceptional. Uh, there are certain people that just stand out. There are certain people that don't do a job halfway. There are, are certain people that you can count on, certain people that you can rely on, certain people, if you're going to be in a foxhole, you want them with you. That's the way these people were. They had proven themselves. So he remembers their work. Verses 7 through 8, he remembers their hearts. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart. Now, what's interesting is that this could actually be translated, that phrase, since I have you in my heart, it could literally be translated, since you have me in your heart. The fact of the matter is, they were in one another's hearts. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of, of grace with me. Uh, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You're talking heart to heart here. Is there anybody in your life that you've got a heart to heart relationship with? Hope you got it with your wife. Anybody else? Any any guy in your life? Has God been good to you to give you a friend that you can walk through life with? You guys might not even be in the same. Uh, you might not even be in the same state, but for a while you were together, and and you know in life. Sometimes, as you go through life, you've heard the adage, if you get two or three good friends, you're a fortunate man. You might be together for a season, and then you're apart. But you stay in touch. See, it's a heart-to-heart -heart kind of thing. Um, the heart is critical in relationships. The heart is critical in everything. The heart is critical in, in Christianity. The heart is critical in marriage. You know what our wives are after? I think our wives are after our hearts. They want to know our hearts. Um, they really do. And, and I think for a lot of us guys, we're not, um, that doesn't come easy to us. That's not natural to us. Uh, women, this is a generalization, but I think it's correct, tend to be very relational. They are, they're connected relationally. We, we can compartmentalize a little bit more. Um, I think what happens in a, in a marriage where we start struggling is, is that we have, uh, we have heart trouble. Because our wives are not able, see what they really want to know, they want to know what's in our heart. They want to know what we're thinking. They want to know what we're feeling. They want to know what's going on in our heart of hearts. Um, I've used this illustration before. I don't know if I've used it in here, but I always say that the good marriages are marriages where a husband and wife wrap their hearts, uh, not in Reynolds wrap, but in Glad wrap. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Sometimes we'll have some people over the house and have a great time. And there's stuff left over, and we'll, we will, uh, you know, you put it away and had a great time, you go to bed. Well, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I'll wake up, and there'll be this still small voice that I'll hear saying, guacamole. <laughs> now, I heed the voice. I, I'm, I'm not even, I'm just half awake. I just get up, don't want to wake anybody up, don't want to up. I make my way into the kitchen. All I want is just a little scoop. A guacamole. I walk into the kitchen. I open the door. I don't even have the light on. Not the kitchen light. I open it. The refrigerator light comes on. Now, if Mary has wrapped, we got some stuff left over. If she has wrapped that stuff in Reynolds wrap, I got a problem. Because I'm going for guacamole. And we got about six deals in there. So I pull the first thing. I got to take the Reynolds wrap off. Remember, I'm, I'm half asleep here. And it's peaches. I don't want peaches. <laughs> I want guacamole. I got to pull the next one out. It's carrot sticks. I don't want carrot sticks. Before you know it, I got six things. I got a Reynolds wrap, the floor, everything, and I'm awake. 
it's not a good situation. <laughs> now let's go back. I wake up at 3 in the morning. I hear guacamole, the still small voice. I heat it. I walk into the kitchen. I open the refrigerator, and Mary has wrapped the guacamole in glad wrap. You know what that does for me? That makes me glad, Phil. <laughs> You've been there, haven't you? Why does it make me glad? Because glad wrap is transparent. You can see through the glad wrap. You can't see through Reynolds wrap. Good marriages are marriages that wrap their hearts in glad wrap. Mary wants to know what's in my heart. I want to know what's in her heart. Your wife wants to know what's in your heart. See, she wants to know what you're really thinking. These people knew what Paul was really thinking. He knew what they were thinking. There, were, there weren't any hidden agendas. There, there wasn't anybody trying to pull a power play. There wasn't, you know, there were some issues that, you know, later he'd touch on. But generally speaking, he knew their hearts because their hearts were transparent. Um, he loved these people. He remembered their hearts. These people were special to him. Well, you got a friend like that. You got something. David and Jonathan, and that was a heart-to-heart -heart relationship. That was a wonderful. David was never the same after Jonathan was killed. That's a special gift. But that's not all he remembers. We've got to move here. In the next couple of verses, in 9 through 11, because they're so special to him, because they have this great relationship, he remembers them in prayer. I think we have to be very careful when somebody says something to us and would you pray about this? I don't ever, I don't ever say, yes, I will, unless I'm going to do it. It's easy to say, yes, I'll pray with you. That's a serious thing to say. Uh, if you're going to do it, great, then do it. But just to flippantly, and, and I'll have people come up to me from time to time, you know, I'll meet a guy in Maryland and say, would you pray with me about this issue? Well, and sometimes I say yes, and sometimes I, I just say, well, you know what, why don't we just pray right now? Because I don't want to tell the guy I'll do it if I'm not going to do it. Paul consistently prayed for these people because of the place they had in his heart. And I want you to catch, we're going to touch this, and we're going to come back to this. I want you to notice how he prays for them. He doesn't pray, now I lay me down to sleep for these guys. He's not praying, Lord, bless this food to our bodies. He's really thinking about how he's praying for. Here's what he says. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, what does this mean? Well, first of all, he's praying not that they would have love because they've got it. He's praying that the love that they have would abound still more and more, like a bubbling artesian spring coming up out of the ground. He wants that love to increase. He wants that love to, uh, to improve. It's good, but, he, but he, he wants to see it continue to grow. But this love, and I think a lot of times in Scripture when we just fly by this stuff, what did he mean by that? He wants their love to abound more and more. This isn't a sloppy love. This isn't a sentimental love. This isn't a, uh, this isn't a Hollywood kind of love. This is a mature, genuine, godly love. It, uh, it, it, isn't, it isn't a teeny bopper kind of thing. It isn't gushy. It isn't sentimental. It's, it's got some meat to it. It's got some, uh, it's got some meat on the ribs. Notice how he describes it, because he hooks it up with a couple of things. He says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. Uh, he's talking about a biblical love that is based on the word of God. He's talking about a love that is governed by the truth. He's talking about a love that is not governed by emotion, but a love that's governed by the word of God. See, when he says that it may abound in real knowledge, where is real knowledge? It's in the scriptures. If, if I'm going to love, if I'm going to love accurately, and if I'm going to love biblically, I've got to know the scriptures. Husbands, love your wives. How? That's knowledge. That's knowledge. See, a lot of guys get married, I love my wife. Do they really? Yeah, flirting with some gal at work. You know, they're on a business trip, having a drink with some gal down in the lounge. Is that how you love a wife? I don't think so. 
Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if I'm going to love my wife, I've got to understand what the scripture says about knowledge because that means I've got to be willing to sacrifice. Oh, wait a minute, this is a whole, what, what's this about? This is a whole new deal. Because I'm to love her as Christ loved the church. 1 Peter uh, 3, 7. Uh, you husbands, likewise, live with your wives, what does it say? In an understanding way. As with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. That's a physical reference. Uh, she's, she's weaker physiologically. Uh, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, that's what he's talking about. He wants their love to be tied up with knowledge. See, if, if it, I got to know the scriptures in order to know how to love. I got to know the scriptures in order to know how to love my kids. How do I love my kids? What do I do for my kids? Proverbs talks all, has all kinds of things to say about raising kids. Discipline your son while there is hope. So you got a 17-year-old who's out of control? What do you do? You better discipline him while there's hope. What do you got, another year or so? He's under your roof. You better put the clamps and the screws on that kid real, ki real quick. Is he out of control? Is he mouthing off to your wife? Is he not showing up when he should? All that kind of stuff. Now, do you love that kid? Sure you do. Would you do anything for that kid? Yeah, and you have. And that's part of the problem. And he's had too much, too fast, too soon. And, and, and what do you do? I mean, I've done this with my kids. I've given them too much too fast. So what do you do? And sometimes there's a Discipline, there's a behavior, there's an attitude issue. What do you do? You better discipline while there's hope. You better step in. And you better take the principles of the Word of God. And while you've got a shot, you better love them according to what? Knowledge. See? Because there's a worldly love. You just give them, you just overlook this, you overlook. They need a dad. They need the fear of the Lord, which begins with the fear of a dad. That dad means what he says. See? You needed that, I needed it. You guys tracking with me here? See, that's how you love according to knowledge. But it's just not love according to knowledge, it's love according to discernment. Hmm. Real knowledge in all discernment. What's discernment? Discernment is the ability to cut through and determine authenticity. Uh, discernment is, is the ability to judge accurately. Uh, discernment is the ability to determine what is false and the counterability to determine what is true. It, it, discernment it involves, uh, involves spiritual. You can't have discernment without knowledge. You can't have discernment without the Word of God. So see, this isn't, hey, this isn't a... Uh, uh, this isn't an oldies radio kind of love, is it? This is a real kind, this is a real kind of love. This is a mature love. This is a godly love. He wants this. This is what he wants for these guys. Let me ask you something. When you pray for your kids, how do you pray for them? It's great to pray the scriptures. When you pray for, uh, when you pray for your wife, how do you pray for her? When you pray for yourself, how do you pray? I think a lot of times we, uh, we, 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 have brought, we have got a great primer here on how to pray because we are in warfare. Paul, what, what Paul is essentially praying for here is that Paul is praying that they would grow and grow in spiritual maturity. That's what he's after. He's asking that God would grant that to them. Uh, notice in verse 10, so that you may approve once again, or the idea of discern the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We'll come back to that. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He, he wants them to abound in love so that they may grow in real knowledge and, and, and all discernment so that they might approve of what is excellent. Excellent. Excellence 
is, uh, in this context, is that which, which God gives his approval to. We live in a culture that is forever lowering the standard. But, uh, but see, when you are pursuing excellence, you're, you're raising the standard. I'm not talking about excellence in the terms of the business books in search of excellence. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an excellence of character. I'm talking about an excellence of decision-making. I did my taxes yesterday. What a wonderful experience that is. I mean, I had to get it all together to send off to, to my account. And uh, I got everything on Quicken, so it's, you know, I'm pouring through these 68 pages of reports and all this stuff. And anyway, I, I, I got an extension until October 15th, and it's coming up. I thought I had to get it in here pretty soon. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on. And you know what's interesting? As I was working on that, I was going through some stuff, and I saw that I had had some income that, uh, that I didn't get a 1099 on. And, um, and usually I get 1099s because, you know, I, I'm out running around speaking and all that stuff. And I looked at it, and uh, it was about $15,000 there. And it crossed my mind. I know this will shock you. Because <laughs> I'm looking at what I got to pay. And, it, and, man, I'm working on it. I mean, I'm humming. I'm looking at it. I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm looking. And then I saw that. And I thought, and it, I thought, you know what? They don't know I made that money. And you know what? They don't know. And you better not tell them. <laughs> but then you know what I thought of? The eyes of the Lord are in every place. The Lord knows I made that money. I know I made that money. I read Romans chapter 13, and it tells me that I'm supposed to pay my taxes, my legitimate taxes. I mean, I, that's in the Greek, the legitimate taxes. You're supposed to pay what you owe. You got a legitimate deduction? Take it. Take them. Take them. Take them. I take them. Just don't make them up. You see, that's, that's excellent. Now, the temptation came. What did I need there? I needed discernment. Because you see, in, in, in looking at a tax bill and writing a check and all that kind of thing, you see, real quick, $15,000 can influence you and you cannot pursue excellence. You can cave in. You don't want to do that. Because the, let me tell you something, you're going to pay a much bigger price than $15,000. There's an old adage, and the old adage is sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. Now, this guy, Paul is talking about the work. You're kind of picking this up. He, he, he remembers their work, he remembers their hearts, he remembers them in prayer. Now, let's go back to verse 6. Because in verse 6, which I think is the heart here, he says, I am confident of this very thing, that who, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. All right, we've been on the Ferris wheel. Now, we, now what we want to do is that we want to get off and we want to get down right into this particular text. Because it, it was the work. You see... He was bonded with these people because they were involved in a work. It was a work. It, it was a work that uh, Paul was not working by himself. You know, in the body of Christ, God, God gives us different things. He gives us different assignments. He gives us different marching orders. What is important is that you be found at your post. Whatever post he has given you, Whatever assignment he has given you, what is important is that you just simply be at your post. Not at some other post, not at some other guy's post. You be at the post he has assigned you at this particular moment in your life. That's the work that he's called you to do. Now, I, we're going to pursue this just a little bit here, this, this whole idea of, of work, because it's the thing, it's one of the central things about salvation. Um, 
he says, now, let's, let's go deep here. He said, I'm confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you. What is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking here about, uh, specifically about salvation. But you see, when you take a step back from salvation, there are some things that are involved in salvation. Um, Bruce Wilkinson has a new little book out called The Life That God Rewards. And he's, he's got some good stuff in here. I, I think Bruce has given some, some, uh, so, some, some very creative thought to some things that we're aware of, but some things that we have forgotten. Um, when it comes to the work, let's ask this. The work that's been done. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work. Let's ask this question. Who is the author of the work? What's it say? It says, he who began a good work. All right, for us to know Christ, God is the author of the work. Let's, let's stop for a minute and think about what had, had to happen for us to come to know Christ, for what had to happen for the Philippians to come to know Christ. Uh, number one, in order for you to come to know Christ, first of all, you had to be physically created. Because, you see, to be born again is to be born a second time, but you've got to be born a first time. So God is the one who brings us into existence, and God is the one who gives us physical life. Then, at a certain time, he determines to give us spiritual life. The work, and then let me, let me jump ahead. And then once he gives us spiritual life, and I would cross-reference this over to Ephesians 2. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when I was pre preaching for Chuck, I covered this. In Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that any man should boast. But before we went to Ephesians 2, we were in Psalm 139, the fact that God gave us physical life and that God brought me into existence. See, he brought me into existence. Why? Because he wanted to do something in my life. So at a certain point, he brings me to Christ. Does Christ just bring us into existence to save us? No, he saves us because he has a work for us to do. There, there are some aspects to salvation. Uh, when we're saved, we come to know him. We're justified. That's an immediate forgiveness. It's a legal term. Um, an easy way to remember that is that it's just as if I'd never sinned. Because the righteousness of Christ is transferred to me. And my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven by the finished work of Christ. When, when Jesus went to the cross, how many of your sins were future? All of them. But at that moment, he paid it all. He said, it is finished. So he paid for my sins before I ever created my sins, before I ever came out of my heart. You guys tracking with me? Right, that's justification. Then there's sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart. It, now that I'm forgiven and I'm a new man in Christ, Galatians 2.20, um, you see, I, I'm a new creature here. I've been crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, I have a new nature. Something has happened to me. So now that I've been justified, I'm also to be sanctified. I'm to be set apart. As I walk through life, Paul says in Ephesians, let him who sins, uh, let him who steals, steal no longer. You see, I've got decisions to make. Uh, and then one day, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to get a new resurrection body. So there's a process to this. So the work, who is the author of all this? God's the author. Let me ask you something about Paul. Stop and think about Paul's life. Did Paul have a blazing desire to know God and be a Christian? Huh? Paul. Paul hated Christianity. Paul was against Christianity. Paul was trying to stamp out Christianity. So, but what happened to Paul? As he's on his way to go persecute Christians, Christ appears to him. Did he seek Christ? No. Christ sought him. He who began a good work. Paul wasn't looking for Christ. He wasn't asking. He was against Christ. Christ began the work. He who began a good work. Uh, in, in Philippi, the church at Philippi, was Lydia looking for the Lord? No, the Lord opened her heart. God begins the work. And the great thing about God 
is that the work that God begins is that God always finishes. Here's a principle, guys. If God begins a work, he finishes a work. Now, do you remember in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it says this. a few weeks ago if you were here that if you're still alive it's because God has work for you to do that you haven't done God has a purpose God has a reason that he has brought you into existence he has a reason that he has saved you and he hasn't just saved you to save you he has saved you because he has a particular work for you to do it's going to be different for everybody um, but it's a work now, let me give you some observations about the work and God's place in the work that he's doing in our lives. All right, here's number one. God oversees the progress of the work. The progress. A lot of times we get frustrated with God because in our lives we want to see more things happen. I was talking with a pastor today in another state. And he's in a very performance-oriented situation. And the Board of Elders is upset with the staff in that church because they increase the budget and they expect to see more results in terms of uh, people coming into the church. And they're like only at 3% growth and they expected, if they were going to increase the budget that much, they expected to see at least 8 to 10% growth. Hey, what is this, General Electric or something? <laughs> That sounds like Jack Welch. What do they do? Take the, the lower 10% of staff and fire them? I mean, that's one of his principles. You see? Hey, the, hey, we're not running GE here. This is the church of the living God. You see, it's a different set. It's not that we don't have excellence, but, but you see, that's, that's, that's worldly thinking. God oversees the progress. Let me Why don't those guys measure the maturity that's happening in the lives of the people in the church? Why don't they measure the guys in the church that two years ago were absolutely overwhelmed by pornography but are now in a, in a group of guys that are struggling and they're working with each other and they're growing? How come they don't measure maturity? How come we're always just measuring numbers? See, we're looking for growth inside, aren't we? And usually when it happens, you're going to see some growth. You're going to see some numbers. That's great. But that's not what we live for. God oversees the setbacks of the work. You know what's interesting about Paul's life? The Lord met him on the road to Damascus. This guy's a charger. This guy's a fireball. And everyone's talking about this guy, that he's become a Christian. And then you know what happens to the guy? He basically drops off, for, uh, he drops off the planet for about 12 years. And we really don't know what happened to the guy, except we know that uh, the Lord was teaching him and that he was off by himself. Uh, Paul wasn't making a lot of progress because it was a time in Paul's life where God was building into him. God was teaching. God was instructing him. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you could look at that and say, well, man, that was a... We have times in our lives that we would say those are setbacks. God is sovereign over the setbacks of our lives. Because, you see, there are things that he wants to do during those times. God is the one who oversees the progress. He's the one that's in your life and in my life. Where are you in your life? in the work that God's doing in your life. See, sometimes we feel like we're making progress, sometimes we're moving ahead, sometimes we really feel good about it. But other times, it's like we're in a holding pattern. Sometimes it's, it's like we're not going anywhere, we're just stuck. God's sovereign over that because there are things that he is doing in that period of time in your life 
that you desperately need. Let me give you another one. He oversees, he oversees the timing of the work. Uh, again, we want to see it happen now. We want this now. We want this here. We want, but see, God's timing is different than my timing. Why would you take a guy like Paul? Why would you take a charger like Paul? Jesus appears to him. He's going to be used by God to establish all these years. Why would you take a guy and set him aside for 12 years? Why would you take the Son of God and send him to earth and basically he would only have three years of public ministry? That makes no sense to me. Is it to you? I mean, at least, how about five? I mean, just give him two more years. See, God's, God is sovereign over the timing of the work. Here's another one. God, is, God oversees the visibility of your work. Sometimes we get frustrated with God because we're not more visible. We, we want to, nobody knows what we're doing. Well, God knows what you're doing. The Bible says don't despise the day of small things. An old song I remember, little is much when God is in it. You don't, you don't know what God's going to do. You, you don't... You, you just don't know. Uh, don't worry about visibility. Don't worry about being up front. Don't worry if people know what you're doing in this church. You know, a lot of problems happen in church because people feel they're not getting attention. You know what? You don't need any. Why would you need attention? Why don't you grow up? Why don't you just serve the Lord with gladness? All that matters is that Jesus knows. He's the one that's going to reward you. Do you need the applause of men? Sometimes people get upset because this person was recognized and this person, why wasn't recognized? Well, you know what? Obviously, with your attitude, you don't need to be recognized. <laughs> you don't have the maturity to be recognized. You see what I'm saying? If you need to be recognized, you'd be recognized. God oversees the visibility of your life. But don't be conned into thinking that what you're doing is insignificant or small that doesn't count. You don't know what God's going to bring out of what you're doing, do you? No, you don't, and I don't either. Here's another one. God oversees the preparation of the work. And here's my next one. God oversees the reward of the work. The reward of the work. Now, this is where I want to go back to Philippians 9, 10, and 11. Okay? The reward of the work. Remember when Paul's praying for these guys? Let's look at this one more time. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, that you may prove the things that are excellent. Now catch this. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of what? The day of Christ. You know what this guy's talking about here? He's talking about when Christ comes back. Um, do you guys realize... We we're talking here that God oversees the preparation of my work. Do you realize that we are not being prepared for the day of our death? We are being prepared for the day of Christ. Because Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, what Jesus is going to do is that Jesus, as believers, we are going to be at a place called the Bema Seat. Let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. When Paul was in Corinth, there was a place called the Bema Seat. You can still visit it today. That was in 1 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, actually, let's back up a little bit. Verse 9, Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, or the bema seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, something you've got to understand. When we come to know Christ, when Christ does a work in my heart, when Christ pursues me and brings me to himself, what happens is, is that because of the finished work of Christ, and as he energizes me, and I say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. What happens is, I'm justified at that moment. 
the sin issue is taken care of. Now, as I walk through life, from that point on, I have a new nature. And before, my nature was not to pursue God. My nature was not to obey God. But now the Spirit of God is living within me, and now I have a desire to please Him because the Holy Spirit is living within me. Um, as that happens now, I have choices that I make. Bruce makes a great statement in this book, and I want you to catch the statement. Here's what he says. Your choices on earth here have direct consequences to your life in eternity. Let me say that again. Your choices on earth have direct consequences to your life in eternity. You ever thought about that? Yes, are you forgiven of your sin if you come to know Christ? Yes. But when Christ comes, we are going to go to the Bema seat. There's going to be a judgment. Not if we go to heaven or hell. That issue's been decided. The Bema seat is a, is a judgment of rewards. Rewards based on what? On how we lived after we came to know Christ and the decisions that we made as believers. Here's another verse for you. Uh, Romans 14 also deals with this. In fact, I'm not going to turn to that just because of the time. Romans 14.10 also talks about this. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because this is the one that really nails it. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. He says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is through the fire. See, my choices on earth have direct consequences to my life in eternity. When Christ comes back, I'm going to be at the Bema seat. You're going to be at the Bema seat. What is he going to judge? He's going to judge my works. He's going to judge my decisions. He's going to judge how I lived after I came to know him. The work, and we've we got to be real clear here. We're not talking about works which get you into heaven, because works don't get you into heaven, do they? For by grace you've been saved. But after the Lord comes into my life, and after he regenerates me, I have a new nature. If you tell me that that's an apple tree and it's the middle of January, I may not see apples. But at some point during the year, I'm going to see some apples because it's the nature of the apple tree to bear what? Fruit, namely apples. When Christ comes into my life, I have a new nature. The Spirit of God lives within me. And what kind of spirit is he called? The Holy Spirit. So there ought to be some change. There has to be some kind of change. There has to be an evidence in my life, and there will be. That's why at one point the Scripture says, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. If there's no fruit in your life whatsoever, you've probably been conned. Because you, you're telling me the Holy Spirit would come into somebody's life and there'd be no change? That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. There's always fruit. Jesus in John 15 prayed that we might bear fruit. We're to be fruit-bearing people. Now, as we walk through life, you know, you know what we're constantly, you know what we're constantly tempted to do? Is not to live out of real knowledge and not to live with all discernment and not to seek the things that are excellent. So you see, what's my motivation? What's my motivation to do those things? Turn with me to Hebrews eleven six. This is a real familiar passage but we tend to emphasize one part over the rest. Hebrews 11 is talking about faith. Hebrews 11 says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, catch this, that he is a, what? A rewarder of those that seek him. Do you realize that when we stand before the Lord, at the Bema seat, here's what I think a lot of us don't realize. That's going to be a judgment of rewards. Do you realize that you can lose rewards at the Bema seat? The work that you do as a believer. See, we're talking about work. 
What's the work God has called you to do? Well, one of the works God has called me to do is, is, uh, is with my wife. It's to live with her in an understanding way. Grant her honor as a fellow of the grace of life. Now, there are times that's easy. There are times when that's hard. My wife fights this stuff called Epstein-Barr virus. And when it hits her, it's like mono. She just, she just goes down. And she really hasn't, she's had a little flare-ups here and there. She hasn't really had too much of it about two years. It hit her about three weeks ago. She hasn't left the house, I don't think, in three weeks. I mean, she's just, and we're supposed to be doing this book together right now. And, I mean, she basically just can't do it. And, and, and I do okay with that for a while. But there are times when she needs to get up. But you know what? She can't get up. Now, see, when everything's fine, she's healthy, and everything's going great, we go out for dinner, it's great. Live with her understanding way. Okay. But see, this, see, this starts. See, the way I handle this is going to be uh, this work that's going on right now in my life, and the relationship, how I handle her. You know what? That's going to get to the beam of seat. Fire is going to go right through that thing. My attitude. If it's an attitude that honors her and honors Christ, you know what? I'll be rewarded for that. If it isn't, I'll have a loss. Not salvation. So as we walk through life, is there a motivation that, as a lot of Christian guys do in evangelical churches, they get tired, they just walk away out of a marriage? I mean, it's amazing to me how many churches have evangelical guys walking out of marriages. It's amazing to me. Sometimes there's biblical grounds, sometimes there isn't. A lot of times there isn't. One of the motivations, if you're in a tough situation, is that you're going to be at the beam of seat. Christ will reward what you do, or you'll suffer loss for what you do. The way we handle taxes, the way we handle kids, the way we handle business, the way, there's a beam of seat. And sometimes we think, you know what? It's not a good thing. Well, we don't want to be motivated by rewards. Well, then why does it say without faith it's impossible to please God? For those that seek him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. You know what? I want to be rewarded in eternity. Do you? Paul prayed that their love would abound in, in real knowledge and in discernment. You see, if I understand that I'm going to stand before Christ one day and that I can be rewarded or I can suffer loss, again, not my salvation, but how I live today has eternal consequences. You know what? I'm going to make better decisions. I'm going to make more, I'm going to make sharper cuts in my life. I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to grow in integrity. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better father. Because we will stand before him. And you know what I want to hear Jesus say when I stand before him? I got some things that, you know what, you're going to just go up on the fire. And so do you. But for the rest of my days, I want to live with that motivation to honor him. And I want to please him. So guys, that'll make a difference how we live this week, won't it? How you treat your wife, hey, you know what? You're going to have to, you know what it comes to? You're going to have to stand before Jesus and explain it. You know what? That kind of concerns me. <laughs> I know he loves me, and I know he's forgiven me. But you, I, I'm telling you, in, in, can you imagine? In, and I, I'll tell you what. I think, it's, I think, I think we're going to be flat on our face in his presence. I, 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 want, uh, I want to honor him now. I want to please him now. See, that's why we don't need to worry too much about being people pleasers. Some of us, that's our nature. You don't need to worry about that. You make it your ambition to please him. And you're going to be fine. So let's do that this week. Let's go out and be men that are living to the glory of God because we're going to stand at the beam of seat. And then let's let him reward us because we're going to live forever. Forever. So, Father, we're all works in process here. 
And Lord, sometimes we get discouraged with our progress. And you know, sometimes we, 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 we've backed up in our husbanding and in our fathering. We've kind of lost it in, in areas of integrity. But Lord, we would uh, count on the scriptures that you who have begun a good work in us would bring it to completion. Lord, that you will finish it. And these setbacks that we have, and these times when we wander, and these times when we get away from truth, you're sovereign even over those times. But Lord, in, in terms of our obedience to you, in terms of our love for you, we want to get right back on track. We want your favor. And not only will you favor us and bless us in eternity, but you'll do that right now. Lord, help us to live in light of eternity and help us in, to live in light of the fact that we'll stand before you one day. Lord, we can't do this work. We couldn't get the work started. We can't maintain the work. We can't do any of it, but you can. Give us a great desire to honor you. Give us a great desire to uh, obey you. Give us a desire to kill sin. Give us a desire to live excellently and to reject impulsive decisions that get us in trouble. We want to be your men. We want to we live at a higher standard and show our children and show our grandchildren that it's possible. They'll see you through that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, men, let's go do this, all right? We'll see you next week. Thank you. Same thing.